Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, famous passage, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, one of the seven letters. Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. This good word endures forever, even for us, even to the end of the age. Thanks be to God. And so from this passage, I'm preaching on church revitalization today, the health and vitality of a local church, and really the individuals within the local church. And uh, surely part of the reason is that we just had the Mission to North America coordinator for church planting and vitality here. Um, He did do a great job. Um, really appreciated his time. But the main reason is that in preparation for my recent sermons on church leadership for the officer nomination period, and then also in preparation for the officer workshop last weekend, the more I read and thought and discussed about the state of the church in our country and what the church needs to do in our changing culture, the more just like burdened I was that we here today in our local church hold this concept in our minds of the constant need for church revitalization. Like, it's something we need. It's not just something that other people need. We're to ask, what does a healthy church look like? How are we doing? How's our health? How do we nurture that? We ask that as individuals as well. So, you know, we can be sick without being aware of it. Small, unnoticed symptoms start occurring. We also recognize the importance of a well check. It's a really good idea. What Chris Vogel said last week, I thought was just very helpful, investment advice. You know, past performance is no guarantee of future success. That's an important principle for us. We don't rest and assume. 
so we must be mindful that our natural tendency is to drift towards unhealth. Like that's just what happens when we're on autopilot. We go to unhealth. I, I see it really doesn't take long for me to get unhealthy. In the recent book, as we went through in Sunday school, The Great Dechurching, the authors state that we're in the midst of the largest and fastest religious shift in our country's history. We're in that now. So over the last 25 years, some 40 million adults, 16% of our adult population that used to go to church now no longer does. So that the reality is that we live in a country in which more people don't go to church than do go to church. And by go to church, we're just talking about once a month. It's this huge shift that's going to have huge repercussions in our churches and in our whole country. And of course, these aren't just stats, these are people we know and love. So a church like us, Lawndale, what do we do? And our natural tendency is to live in denial or to give in to fear, like churches can be anxious places. They don't need to be, we don't operate that way. We could frantically go to some innovative, ingenious solution. And certainly we need to be creative. We do in reaching and making and maturing disciples of Jesus. We could lean more into that, but on a deeper, more fundamental level, our main concern is much more basic. It's calmer, it's more patient, is to recognize signs of unhealth and to nurture health. There's no secret antidote out there. Rather, scripture gives us a regimen of fitness this regiment of good health and flourishing, we could say the scriptures give us a roadmap to revitalization. And, and, and multiple ways to look at it, but we're looking at one today. So my main source is, secondary source is this book called Embers to a Flame. It was written by the late pastor Harry Reeder, many of you would know, and he followed Frank Barker at Briarwood in Birmingham planted a church before that, revitalized another one after that. His great burden was for church revitalization. He started Embers for, to a Flame ministry to promote it. In fact, our sister church, Redeemer in Saltillo, is going through their program right now. And so I appreciate a lot of what Dr. Reeder says. He, he goes, you know, every year, Jack Nicholas, greatest golfer of all time, Jack Nicholas would go to his teacher, whom he called his first and only teacher, Jack Grout. Every year following the season, he'd go to Jack Grout, he'd look at Mr. Grout, and he'd go, Mr. Grout, teach me how to play golf. The greatest golfer in the world, every year, teach me how to play golf. Mr. Grout, teach me the grip again and teach me the trigger, teach me the takeaway, teach me the turn, the follow through, teach me about the face of the club, teach me again, review the basics with me, nothing innovative, just teach me to swing a golf club again. And so the alarming things we see happening in our culture, I mean, we can put the blame on the church in large part or significant part we, we forget and we move past the basics. When the Apostle John writes, you know, this letter to the church in Ephesus, 
You know, it's one of the seven letters, and and the church in Ephesus is like mother church. These are daughter churches, so it comes first. So it's the most important one. He's seeking the revitalization of the church in Ephesus. It's a great way to look at it. So some of these churches, Ephesus included, mother church is in critical health. How could she be? But she is. So he gives prescriptions for recovery and also remedies for increased health. It's this roadmap to revitalization that's clearest in the letter to Ephesus. And it's so impactful. It has been for me. You're going to have to bear with me just a little bit. But it's been impactful for me just how much attention is given to the revitalization of the church in Ephesus in the New Testament. And so Paul's mission work, for example, he, he's all about planting new churches. But the interesting thing is, on his second and third missionary journey, he launches out expressly to pass through the same churches he had already planted in order to strengthen them again or revitalize them again. His first and second missionary journey. The takeaway for us at local churches, we too regularly need to be strengthened, revitalized. It's on the third missionary journey that Paul plants the church in Ephesus. It's about A.D. 52. A.D. 52. Um, He stays in Ephesus longer than in any other place, almost three years. Now, for Paul, that's a lifetime in the church in Ephesus, from 52 to 55. It's this incredibly important city important to the whole region, the Roman province of Asia. So it becomes a hub of Paul's missionary labors so that the surrounding cities hear the gospel. So the other six churches that the apostle John writes in Revelation are churches planted out of the church in Ephesus. Because if you remember, in AD 70, the Apostle John becomes pastor of the church in Ephesus. Like, would you want to be a pastor that followed up after Paul, Timothy, and John? Those are the three main pastors in the early stages of the church. So, again, Paul plants the church in Ephesus in about 52 AD, and Pastor Reader calls it an epicenter church. I like that phrase. It's like the epicenter of an earthquake. It sends out its shock waves that are felt for miles around. And so the Ephesian church sent out these gospel shock waves impacting the surrounding area, the six other cities, and beyond them. And I really like this image, like just thinking of our church. Might we be an epicenter church to this region, sending out gospel shockwaves? Well, one of the evidences, if you recall in Acts, one of the evidences of the vibrancy, uh, the influence of the Ephesian church is that, is that story about the no little disturbance. Just wonderful understatement in, in scripture. Uh, no little disturbance arose because Demetrius, the silversmith, and his colleagues got so angry that they were losing business because the Christians in Ephesus discovered that silver statues to Artemis were nothing more than empty idols and they didn't need them anymore. They found the living and true God in the Lord Jesus Christ and they quit buying silver statues and Demetrius and his colleagues got irate about it and staged a riot against them. 
shows the impact of a local church to undermine destructive idolatry in a culture. Well, in 55 AD, Paul leaves to go plant other churches, but he comes back through two years later. So about AD 57, he comes back through, and that's when that famous passage, he calls the Ephesian elders over, they hug and they weep and they cry, but he says these words, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's that precious to him. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I mean, that's two years later is all it takes, and Paul visiting with these elders of this vibrant, earth-shaking church is already concerned about their health. And then he travels on to Jerusalem, but in Jerusalem, you remember, he gets arrested and put in prison. He's in prison four years. Ends up in Rome. So between about AD 60 and AD 62, Paul writes, this church he loves so much, he writes the Ephesian church. And it's a glorious letter. I mean, some call it the crown of Paul's writings, the queen of the epistles. I mean, it's this rhapsody of beauty and this reflective admiration and wonder of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. This lofty, exuberant depiction of the gospel. And then the way that gospel forms us into a community which is concretely and radically different. A whole new citizenship. And see, this letter is like preventive medicine to maintain and increase the healthy Ephesian church. Like, they should take this to heart and just get healthier. And yet, when Paul gets out of prison in 62 AD, Like something's gone dreadfully wrong. The Ephesian church has become woefully sick. So Paul takes his protege, Timothy, with him. He travels back to Ephesus. He appoints Timothy as the pastor. And Timothy's supposed to nurse them back to health. And Paul has to go to Macedonia, but he's so worried about them that he sends a letter back to Timothy, 1 Timothy, because their health is so critical. And he gives him the authorized you know, prescribed treatment for their revitalization. That's what we got in 1 Timothy. So Ephesians is like preventive medicine. 1 Timothy is like curative medicine. Well, it does seem the Ephesian church responded to Timothy's pastoral efforts and Paul's depictions or prescription for their cure in 1 Timothy. They do get stronger. They go through a period of revitalization for, for several years, several years. Nevertheless, by the time the Apostle John writes his letter, and Paul writes, John writes his letter from exile in Patmos, an island off the Asian coast, he's pastored there 25 years, it's now about 95 AD, it's like 35 years after 1 Timothy was written, so he's in exile 25 years after you know, being pastor there. 
And once again, the Ephesian church has fallen into critical illness. Again, past performance, no guarantee of future success in our life or in our church's life. So with that, it shouldn't surprise us that churches need regular revitalization. It needs to be a category we think about. And so now they're again in critical health and John writes to the Ephesian church in about 95 AD. And they're suffering from this subtle variant of what Paul had warned them about. You see, in, in, in the letter, false teaching isn't the core of the problem. I mean, 1 Timothy 1.3, they learned the lesson then when Paul said, I urge you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach false doctrine. I mean, they learned that lesson we find in this letter. At that time, the church chose unqualified men, elders and deacons who disseminated back doctrine. So they've learned that lesson now. But 35 years later, they're suffering a strange variant of that. And John essentially says, you're working so hard for the kingdom. You're not growing weary and well-doing. You're patiently enduring pressure from the world. You're holding fast to good doctrine, avoiding leaders who spread false doctrine. All that's good. You've learned your lesson. Those are signs of health, but you've succumbed to a dangerous variant that's making you sick, though you don't realize it. You've... You've abandoned the love you had at first. You've lost your first love. With all of that, you've lost your first love. And it's not a light malady. It's so serious that left untreated, your church is going to die. It's to say, so though you look good on the outside, you're desperately sick on the inside. You're like a, a really athletic person who's shocked to discover his heart is damaged. The reason and motive of all you're doing is off. It's not love for God and others. That's the variant they're suffering. And so what's the remedy for such a serious disease? What's the roadmap to revitalization? Like, what do you do when you realize you just lost your first love? That there's other reasons you're doing what you're doing. Like as an individual, as a church, for that matter, you can apply that to your marriage. Like what, do you, like what do you do when you sense like that love is frayed and worn? How do you deal with it? Well, verse five is our roadmap to revitalization. It's something we need to keep in our heads. When he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. It's remember, repent and recover. Remember, repent, and recover. And that's the curative medicine for us when some other love has taken hold of our hearts and we've lost our love for God and others. Like something else is driving us and motivating us and we just lost it, we know it. You see, the enemy of our souls is going there. It's probably the most subtle danger that can happen. So remember, repent, recover. First, remember, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. You lost your first love, remember. The point isn't to go back to the, back to the past like the glory days, to wistfully recall an error in the church history and just to repeat what you did back then. It's not to treat the church like a monument. We never want to do that. Rather, it's to remember in order to refresh our hearts with how good God is and was to us. 
so that we can live more wholeheartedly in the present and so that with that reassurance, we could take steps of faith to create a movement into the future. It's always been an incredible, important habit for God's people. Throughout the Psalms, we see that, how important it is to take that time to remember how powerful and faithful and loving God is, not just to others, but to you. Psalm 98, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Think of the time Israel crossed over the Jordan to enter the promised land. Like, finally, they're crossing the Jordan. And God instructs Joshua to tell a representative from each of the 12 tribes to, to pick up a stone from the middle of the river and carry it to the place they'd stay that night. So these men just pick up a stone and walk umpteen miles to the place they stayed that night. And the question is, why? Why do that? Well, the answer given in Joshua is so that when your children, when your children ask you, what's the deal with the stones? You catechize them at that point and say, God, he dried up the Jordan and we walked into the promised land. Can I tell you how long-suffering he was with us those 40 years and how he kept his promises? You remember. Why did you fall in love with your wife or your husband? You remember. Why did you fall in love with God? What was it like? What drew you to faith? What was it like the hour you first believed and you knew that guilt was gone? Do you tell your children about it? We remember when things go bad from bad, from bad to worse. You know that big story, the religious shifts in our country. We, we, we look at that and we say, no, wait a second. This is his story. Like he really is still in control of this thing. Like all scripture manifests that God keeps his promises and he's more than capable to save his people. All church history shows that he manifests the same thing. We're not in chaos. He's lovingly, powerfully in control now. You know, sometimes older members of our church, you, you talk, I mean, I encourage you to talk, but they'll, they'll, they'll mention Barber's milk plant. Right? They're not trying to go back, glorifying those days, but there's something about it. You know, they kind of go, we were this little group of people that wanted to play in a reformed church and some kind owner of Barber's Milk Plant let us have a Bible study there. How faithful was God? We remember, repent. Repent, our health, our vitality gets sapped when we sink into sin, you know it. It's an awful feeling. The sickness John diagnoses in Ephesians, what's the sickness, what's the sin pattern? Well, it's just lovelessness, lovelessness. And you just kind of sit with that a moment. He just told them they don't have love for God and others. 
that's the heart of the whole thing. Like he's taken the whole heart out. It's like a hollow tree. There's nothing there. There's, he's taken the, they, they've lost their heart for God. Psalm 32, David recognizes his sin. He goes, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I mean, he was in need of revitalization that would only come by confessing his sins. So when he confesses them in Psalm 51, beautiful descriptions, his bones rejoice, his spirit is renewed, his joy is restored, there's, there's health again. We confess our sins in a church. We can only be honest when we have an atmosphere of grace. Becky Pippert, who writes, Out of the Salt Shaker, Into the Fire, uh, Into the World. She has another book, which she, like a good friend of hers, was an alcoholic. He was a drunk. He goes to an AA meeting, and he tells her what it was like as he's in recovery. He goes, man, I was in this group, and I had to admit I was a drunk, and I was in this, they, like everybody was hurt and weak and knew they couldn't quit drinking on their own, and we were this community of the wounded, the wounded being healed. She goes, what a great description of the church. Then he looked at her and smiled and said, well, the only thing is when I was drinking and I went to church, though people were nice, I got the distinct impression that they were telling me, come back when you get your act together. We repent when there's an atmosphere of grace. We have an atmosphere of grace we're connected to our first love. That must be an important reason why in 1 Timothy, when Paul writes and they need a revitalization then, he says, this is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so we got the most important leader in the church just laying it out there and saying, I'm the worst sinner among you. An atmosphere of grace to repent. We have things to repent of. Like, you know, oftentimes if a church is languishing, the leadership needs to say, how have we been shepherding the flock? How have we been praying for the flock? The leader, Paul, saying, I'm the chief of sinners. What's our community like? Third, recover, recover and do the works you did at first. Recover your first things. In a struggling marriage, what were those things you did early on? Mr. Grout, teach me how to play golf. Well, we don't really have time to do much, but we'll do just a few. The first, the first importance is the gospel. If they've lost their first love, the reason is they've forgotten God loves them. And that's what the Apostle John would say. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Might we get enamored by God's love for us in the gospel more? The best illustration of this is Ephesians. You know, that queen of the epistles, the first three chapters is all about the gospel blessings that God does for you. All you contribute in the first three chapters is, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. Everything else, adoption, redemption, sealing of the spirit, inheritance is all from God for you. We receive by faith. The gospel is for believers every day. 
Another is gospel formation. Such Ephesians presents that to us so beautifully again in chapters four through six, this gospel that we receive by grace, now we get to work it into our lives. And so you have this model. The model is when we put off our sin patterns, we renew our minds in the gospel, we put on a new activity, stealing. I quit stealing because I renew what my true riches are, so now I become generous with my wealth. But all of this can only take place in community. And so the third thing we think about is, we have to promote real community. And so Ephesians 4, one through seven that we read earlier, how emphatically it speaks of being one, one. That's how you practice this putting off and putting on, this forgiving and extending grace, all of that. And maybe a fourth, we could say, we have to have intercessory prayer, like expectant. Ephesians 3 is maybe the most beautiful passage on it. May I be praying for how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you would do above and beyond what I could ask or imagine, this visionary intercessory praying and recovering some of those first things. And maybe a fifth would be, just a zeal for the Great Commission. And you think of how impactful this church was, but they had lost sight of that. But the verse that's meant, you know, that always means so much to me when I'm preaching on officers is just 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. When Paul looks at the Ephesian church and says, don't you know that you are the pillar and buttress of the truth? Like as a pillar and a buttress uphold and support a building, even so... By word and deed, your church upholds and supports the gospel. The gospel, like it's that important. So in a moment, we're gonna declare our faith with the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe the Holy Catholic Church. Like, what does that mean? We don't believe the church like we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we believe the church is that important that you are the pillar and buttress of the truth that I can grow in grace and I can extend your grace to others. A few of the things that we recover, just the basics, like our version of Mr. Grout, teach me to play golf, a roadmap to revitalization as a people. So I want you to keep that in mind, just for us, as we, as we, as we look at ourselves and we seek to get more healthy, Remember, repent, and recover the first things. Might we be about that personally, in our families, in our church, all for God's glory. Amen. Let's stand.